Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. I've taken a brief sabbatical from interviewing for the last couple of months, but I'm happy to say I'm back, and I'm back with a terrific book. It is Francis Spufford's Red Plenty, Industry, Progress, Abundance, Inside the 50s Soviet Dream. It's a bit of a departure for us in the sense that it is historical fiction, though, of course, it is based on true events. More importantly, it's an interesting example of what happens when the empirical restraints, which are generally placed on historians, are somewhat relaxed. Francis tells us what happened what actually happened, but he does so through a series of fictionalized characters and situations, and he does it masterfully. If I had to recommend one book about the Soviet Union to someone who wanted to understand it, I think I would recommend Red Plenty rather than a traditional history. You might find that surprising. In any event, I absolutely guarantee you that if you read Red Plenty, if you're interested in the Soviet Union or not, you will be very gratified. And I was very pleased to talk to Francis today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Francis. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm pretty well. I'm glad to hear that. Today we have Francis Spufford on the show, and we're going to be talking about his terrific book, Red Plenty. I was a bit skeptical of this book when I got it in the mail. I got it unsolicited. I get a lot of books. And I don't read a lot of what – we'll talk about this. I call it historical fiction. Um, other people call it other things. I don't read a lot of it, but it was about the Soviet Union, and I studied the Soviet Union or did. And so I thought, hmm, who in the heck would write a book about the Soviet Union, a, a, a work of historical fiction about the Soviet Union? And so I started to read it, and I, I honestly – I got very enthusiastic about the book. I think Francis will tell you. I kind of – it was like I was a stalker or something. Because I just emailed him out of the blue, and I'm like, you've written a great book. Do you know you've written a great book? What can I do? What can I do? And, you know, I did everything I possibly could to make sure that the book um, reached the widest possible audience. And I think it has reached a wide audience. I'm very happy to say that, too, because it is a really, really terrific book. If you want to understand the Soviet Union, do not read my books. (laughs) Read Francis's book. It's a lot better. And as he says in the introduction, there's more truth in it, even though it is a kind of... Uh, historical fiction. Again, we'll talk about whether he thinks it's historical fiction or not. But Francis, welcome to the show. Could you begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Right. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a British writer. My background is as a literature person. Um, but I come from a I come from a family of historians. Um, father, medieval economic. Mother, seventeenth century social. So, so scholarship is kind of in the environment and possibly in the DNA, although not actually in what I do for a living. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, and also I know what scholarship looks like. and I know that what I do isn't quite it, though I, I try not to offend against it too gravely. 
Um, the things I write have no common thread, whatever, except that I was interested in them at the time, and I thought that they were interestingly difficult to write about. So I've got a book about um, cultural history of British polar exploration, book about um, book about children's literature, which is a kind of memoir, book about engineering and 20th century British history, um, and Red Plenty, which is about the Soviet economy under Khrushchev. Yeah. I was going to say, you are one of those people that took all that liberal arts crap seriously. <laughs> Another... why, wouldn't why, why wouldn't you <laughs> on the permission to wander around? Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, did, I did too. And I, if you look at the books, I mean, I wrote a lot of things on Russian history, but I just had a book about the history of communications and I write for magazines about stuff that has nothing to do with anything. And as we discussed before, I've become a tradesman. I don't know why I've done that, but it seemed interesting to me and so I did it, you know, and I'm not starving yet. Neither are my children, although that may be coming. I don't know. I might, I might have to put the bite on you for dollars. <laughs> You're far away on a different continent. That's right. Yeah. The has to put the bite on me is strictly limited. It's so- very limited. You're absolutely right. So, so you do wander around a little bit, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I often describe myself as a professional dilettante. I won't, uh, I won't paint you with that brush. How did you come to write Red Plenty? It is, um, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, not something everyone knows about this period in the 1950s in the Soviet Union. What I hope is that I haven't done it from a pure spirit of of perversity, because there is a a little bit of me that um, likes the idea of of arm wrestling against the most boring possible subject that one could could find. Um, And and forcing it into a state of submission in which it has to yield up something something interesting but that i'm glad to say is not my only motive here um i started off interested in in plenty without without the red um the germ of the book came along um during the dot-com bubble um when i i just i was i i found myself very interested in the the psychology of abundance and people's perennial desire to believe that that this time um it would be feast 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 and never fast again um, but the dot-com bubble, though it did have British, you know, it had a British version. It wasn't that local to me. Um, so I didn't end up pursuing the kind of technological aspect of it. Um, I found myself thinking, well, this is, this is actually one of a, of, of a family of similar 20th century situations. Um, and I thought after I'd looked at it for a bit that actually it would be, it would be interestingly kind of, dissonant and world rearranging to to look at the 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 20th century soviet quest for plenty not as it as it's usually seen as a kind of um diametrical opposite to to the story of 20th century capitalism but as a kind of cousin to it something the the weird mutant bloody-handed cousin but still recognizable as a cousin part of a a general 20th century attempt to get us out of ancestral scarcity into into the state of abundance um that then required me to start knowing things about russia and as ought to be really very clear from the description of my books, <laughs> I'm not a Russianist. I, I don't have a background in Soviet history. I don't, in fact, speak Russian or read Russian. So I was dependent on interpreters when I was there and people kindly translating stuff for me when I was doing the research. And, and God bless it, the Central Intelligence Agency, oh, yeah. which invested so much money they in did. the 
1950s and 60s, translating Soviet materials so that 40 years later, I could be the first person in a research library to consult them. Yeah, for... they did a nice job. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. And there was, there was a certain thrill in picking up um, Rand Corporation reports oh, for yeah. major personalities in Soviet cybernetics and realizing that you were the first <laughs> to open it dusty pages since 1971. Um, hey, I like that kind of thing. Major personalities in yeah. Soviet cybernetics. Yeah, no, that, you know. But once upon a time, no, this is, this, is, this is why once upon a time that word major was, was not ironic. Once upon a time, I can't remember who it was in, um, in Kennedy's kitchen cabinet. It could even have been Arthur Schlesinger or somebody like that was, was announcing nervously that Soviet cybernetics was their, was their, was their ace in the hole. And that unless the West closed the cybernetic gap, we were going to be stuffed, screwed, unable to, to compete with the sleek, modern efficiency of the Soviet economy. And it's, it's getting back to the point where that seemed like, like a reasonable perspective that was one of, one of the major goals of the book. It seems to me that, that although the Soviet economy turns out to be a famous disaster, and you can see the kind of the lineage of the disaster already growing if you look hard in, in 1960, it needs still to be rescued from, from the patronage of history and from a kind of rather lazy teleological idea mm-hmm. that, that you, you can read disaster back into it all the way. It seems to me that we, we, we are failing to understand the past properly if we don't attempt to understand it on its own terms. And the middle of the 20th century is surprisingly far away in its, in its assumptions about what is, what is rational, what is rational, what is to be... What is mm-hmm. to be Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I liked about the book is that it deals with uh, one of the several attempts on the part of the Bolshevik Party to make the Soviet economy uh, work. One of the things that um, I don't know whether it was Richard Pipes or Martin Maley or somebody points out uh, or pointed out was that no one had ever built a socialist economy before. They didn't know how to do it. I mean, the idea of planning is pretty simple. Uh, you create a budget and you distribute resources and then you try to optimize the use of those resources and you meet demand and take, uh, you know, some sort of census of people to see what they want. And it's all quite rational. Uh, it might be how your household runs, I don't know. Uh, but actually doing it on a very large scale is is, is, is extraordinarily difficult. And, and they were really uh, making it up as they were going along. And the Cybernetics Initiative was another attempt, fourth or fifth, to make the system work more efficiently than it, it, it had. Um, Another thing I really liked about the book, and this is really a subtext, is that the competition between capitalism and socialism was really one of, uh, it's interesting because it was a providing plenty. It was a providing abundance. That's, 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 what, you know, that's what socialism promised people. They said, look, we're going to make you rich. That's what we're going to do. That, it seems to me, is, is one of the things that we're in danger of losing sight of by, by reading backwards from the, from the end of the Soviet Union and our kind of yeah. default picture of it as a place of, of obsolescent tractor factories. Yeah, um, that's right. Um, but it's, it's there. If you look back at, at Khrushchev and Nixon in the, in the American kitchen in yep. Moscow, having their kitchen debate, um, Khrushchev is entirely signed up to the idea that the test of communism will be its ability to, mm-hmm. to outdo the West at this stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he reserves the right to be a little bit sarcastic about 
about about some more elaborate labor-saving appliances, but basically <laughs> it's better washing machines. Mm-hmm. Socialism will provide better washing machines than capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, as I say, they've tried various things before. Unfortunately, there aren't great novels like yours about them. You know, for example, there was War Communism, and then later there was the Net Period, what's called the Net Period in the 1920s, and then the most famous of them is collectivization and this rapid industrialization, forced industrialization, uh, and then, of course, the war intercedes. But the next big initiative, and this is the one your book is about, is the cybernetics initiative. Uh, let me ask you this, since I think most people don't know. What, what is cybernetics? It's not a word that uh, really falls off the tongue at this point or trips off the tongue. Uh, except that the, the cyber prefix has kind of floated yep. through cyber, cybernetics and, and, and headed off to, to, to a, whole, a whole new net-related life. Um, cybernetics is an American idea from the 1940s. Um, Norbert Wiener, Wiener, kind of visionary visionary engineer, um, named it um, named it after the the Greek word for a steersman, a kubernetiki, and it is it is the science of controlled systems. It's where um, it's where the idea of feedback was 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 first thought of. It's Mm -hmm. it's essentially it's a it's a universal grammar for understanding the control of systems with Mm -hmm. positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. and it, you know, it begins. It begins in America at the kind of the interesting visionary fringe of American engineering, um, um, and it is instantly frowned upon as bourgeois, <laughs> the late Stalin time in the Soviet Union. But then, gets quietly picked up by a generation of Soviet scientists who are about to become influential, and use their influence to get cybernetics made, um, you know, made first legitimate and then virtually compulsory in the Soviet Union by, by, by the mid-1960s. Because what they see is a way of talking in universal system design terms about a whole raft of, of problems in the Soviet sciences. It, they see it as a non-ideological language, something which is properly rational, which is which is free of the loading of various ideological terms. So they love it. They think they've they've chanced onto something which is like the sort of the true language of, of science, the language spoken in scientific Eden, where the nouns correspond to the things. <laughs> and it takes a while for the, the ironies involved here to, to, to start to, to come apart. But there is a there is this kind of cybernetic cybernetic dawn in the Soviet Union in the late fifties, early sixties, when it suddenly looks like like the key to getting proper genetics back when it when it's um, you know when it's it's instrumental in economic reform proposals when you've got a bunch of red army telecommunications engineers suggesting hey why don't we do one great big computer network of all computer networks which would talk to each other with some kind of uniform protocol who knows what kind of application <laughs> that could produce there's a there's a, um, a great paper by Slava Gerovich of MIT oh, yeah. called mm-hmm. Internet about mm-hmm. why that particular idea didn't reach the fruition. Mm-hmm. Could have done because it's exactly parallel to to the to the ARPANET. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, if I can go if I can go back a bit, oh, yes. Um, yes, I mean cybernetics is exactly in 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 sequence of various Soviet panaceas. Basically, it it, it is. It is a sign of, of the way in which the Soviet Union was both an intensely developed society, extremely rich in maths and physics PhDs, and also, in a funny way, still a kind of anxious, intellectually 
deferential one that it kept importing ideas, each of which was in turn seen as 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 the one true solution, the the the, the key to turn all locks. You can say that. Bolshevism, you know, in its way was, in fact, one of those ideas in itself. And um, war communism is partly modelled on what the Germans were doing with indicative planning during World War One. Um, the NEP is a kind of is a kind of capitalism light. Um, and in a way, they don't really get original until they get to to the first the first five year plan. Although it's you know, one could think of that as being a kind of Soviet daydream about Taylorist management. It's kind of time and motion study taken to its absolutely kind of logical extreme mm-hmm. east of east of the Ural. Stack Hanovites are, are carrying out the Taylor management principle. But, and this is where eventually the cybernetics is going to come in, in a world where where demand signals are almost non-existent and that doesn't matter too much in the first heavy lifting stage of industrialization because you know you need lots of producer goods you need your concrete and you need your electricity and you need your steel to do to do everything else and for a while it makes sense to have metrics which are purely to do with with output more and more and more and more and more please and you can pat yourself philosophically on the back and say we've escaped from the falsifications of western thinking about this because we are never held back by anything except the technical limitations of our society. And then it turns out by this fascinatingly kind of um, sort of endogenous process that that entirely cut off pretty much from the mainstream of 20th century economics and 20th century social science, the the mathematicians and physicists who, who are trying to sort these things out in the Soviet Union reason their way back to the necessity of something like price signals in order to set, you know, to set a relative agenda for what needs to be produced, how much, in what order, for where. And cybernetics then appeals to them because it looks as if it provides a technical alternative to, to markets. It, it'll, it'll give you a, a complete, um, it'll give you a complete priority list which will let you run your huge coordinated society and all of those feedback loops will will take care of the the relative proportion of the parts and mm-hmm. there are genuinely brilliant people doing this one of my central figures or characters depending if it isn't we're <laughs> coming to that um, one of my central figures um leonid vitalievich kantorovich the only soviet citizen ever to win a nobel prize for economics um produces genuinely groundbreaking maths, which becomes part of the basis for linear programming, gets used as an algorithm all over the world now in airline scheduling and Mexican cement delivery and loads of loads of stuff, um, and spends the rest of his life trying to persuade the powers that be that, that if they would just reform the Soviet economy according to his prescription, then sweet reason and, and um, material abundance would, would follow quickly. Um, and my book is a kind of investigation of the ironic failure of this vision, either to be tried or to deliver when it was tried. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how, um, 
I'm trying to think how to ask this question. Oh, uh, ask it rudely. That's well, no, I was going to ask it rudely, but you know, the people who are working on this, these economists um, who, who are very quantitatively oriented, let's put it that way, uh, how much of it did they see cybernetics as a cover for the introduction of market reforms? And how much did they see it as uh, really an attempt to create a kind of socialist feedback network of uh, information from uh, demand? This is an extremely tricky question. Um, and I ended up, I thought, having to decide between two perfectly viable ways of understanding the same limited set of data, limited partly because I don't speak the Russian. Um, one understanding of it would say um, these people are part of the kind of intellectual loyal opposition in, in Soviet life. They are people who like almost everybody in Soviet intellectual life, are signed up to the basic legitimacy of their society and its project. So, so yes, they, um, they more or less buy the distant caricature of, of capitalism as, as um, hideous, destructive, anti-Semitic, prone to frequent crises, and, and yes, are interested in cybernetics as an alternative to that. They, they think they can genuinely outdo it. It's part of the old Stalinist slogan of overtaking and surpassing only now being carried out in subtle, humane, intellectual terms rather than by forced labor, for example. Conversely, yes, these are extremely clever people. And if you did want to quietly reintroduce um, controversial ideas like supply and demand into, into your economy, if your idea of reason was fundamentally market-based, then you wouldn't do anything very different from what you're trying to do. You'd be nibbling at the margin mm -hmm. the, of the irrationality of the planned economy by trying to suggest ways in which a demand-like logic could be kind of, you know, could be sneaked into it. Um, so competing with capitalism, sneaking capitalism in. Um, on the one side, there is there is the there is the kind of relative intellectual isolation of, of you know, Soviet mathematical life. Um, and I would say signs of continuing, lingering socialist idealism in, in these people. They have, you know, they have, they have their hopes invested here, I think. Um, I very much like um, Stephen Kotkin's description of the Soviet Union as a society booby-trapped with, with idealism. Um, People are willing to, to be idealistic in kind of Bolshevik ways right to the end of Soviet history. Mm -hmm. Terribly destructive consequences. There are various moments in which they, they could have chosen the Chinese route, for example. Yeah. Um, and instead of which they do the idealistic thing and destroy the party's monopoly on power, for example. Mm -hmm. very end. Um, looked at the other way, um, Kantorovich for example, was in contact with a lingering bit of pre-revolutionary economics expertise in, in St. Petersburg. Um, and he was noted for never, never, never being willing to spell out the social consequences of his, of his maths. He would, he would present it in terms that factory managers could, could, could use as a kind of um, fingers and thumbs and slide rules kind of calculation, mm -hmm. but he would never do implications. He, mm -hmm. he constantly tried to, to press the idea that it, you know, it was just, just technical. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly now, some of the people I talked to said, you know, brilliantly clever man. Um, obviously, he could never have believed all of that, all of that bullshit. Um, he was, he was doing, doing the most 
he could. Um, but that seems to me to be in danger of a, of a different kind of, of post-Soviet backward glance. It's got the, it's got the wisdom of the rearview mirror in it, mm-hmm. and I, I don't entirely buy it. But in the end, and this goes back to the question of genre and what kind of book it was I wrote, I ended up, I ended up leaning towards idealism rather than secret market-based cynicism in my understanding here because it enabled me to tell the wider story of crumbling Soviet idealism. I mean, I, I partly made a literary rather than historical decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, one of the ways in which, in which Red Plenty really does behave like a novel rather mm-hmm. than like, like an essay. Mm-hmm. No, I see what you mean. Yeah, that, that is consistent with my historical judgment. I, the people that I met in the Soviet Union, I, I can't really call them uh, true believers in the sense that they were fanatics, mm. but uh, their word for um, taking profit was speculatia. Yeah. That's the only word they had. I know. And that's the way they thought of it. Uh, <clears throat> if, you read, if you read studies of the, of the black networks of, of favor trading and things, um, there, in people's most illicit and unofficial behavior, you get the kind of reproduction of official morality only moved over a bit. So mm-hmm. that people think it's okay to trade things like you know, access to flats and tutoring for children and things. But, but once you get into things that, that, that come a bit closer to kind of the core of communist morality, all of a sudden they're, they're back on their, on their Puritan hind legs and they really think that that stuff shouldn't have anything to do with money. It's to do with you know, friendship and being a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I, I, don't, I don't see lingering market-based perceptions here. I see, I see brilliantly clever people thinking their way slowly towards the edges of, of the domain of possible thoughts in their society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's... Uh... Um, let's uh, approach the question slowly of what kind of a book this is. Mm. Um, uh, histories are about real people. Are there real people in your book? Yes. Okay, who are they? Uh, Kantorovich himself, um, Khrushchev himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although my warrant for putting Khrushchev himself in is, of course, a literary one. I'm doing Khrushchev because Tolstoy thought it was okay to do Napoleon. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, you know, because Solzhenitsyn thought it was okay to do. Um, <laughs> not that I resemble Tolstoy or Solzhenitsyn in any other ways at all, but hey, there are there are there are precedents, there sure. are precedents for this. Um, um, and I have a variety of kind of incidental historical people. I've got a chapter about the the Novocherkask massacre and the factory manager is the real factory manager who made the disastrous. Marry Antoinette-like speech, suggesting that people, if they couldn't afford meat, would feed their children on 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 awful pasties, um, and um, and like that. So I've got I've got the most the most famous of the of the math of, of the mathematicians and the politicians tend to be real. Kosygin is in there. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have some completely fictional people, and I also have this um, more ambivalent group in the middle who are fictional characters standing in the lives of, of real people. Um, so I have people who are, as it were, fictional counterparts to the Soviet economist, Abel Agenbekian and um, the mathematician, uh, sorry, the, the biologist, Reiser Berg. Um, mm-hmm. um, and that was, it was, you know, it was, it was curious working out what it, what it was. I felt like I, I, 
could and couldn't permit myself to to do there. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's not like it's not like you've got truth over here and fiction over here. What you've actually got are several different versions of truth telling, which mm-hmm. overlap with each other and sometimes produce complicated and even unpleasant interference effects as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell yourself quite easily that you are committed to the historical record, yes. And you can also tell yourself that you are, you are committed to, as it were, the, the emotional truth of fiction, where everyone knows that, that, that making stuff up is a legitimate way for us to understand kind of human, human situations. Um, if you're trying to install one inside the other or, or one kind of partly overlapping the other, then you get into uncanny and paradoxical territory. And my anxiety about the book and I, naturally, I have a literary anxiety and a historical anxiety. My <laughs> anxiety is that I've ended up falsifying, falsifying things, um, not so much in in terms of actual facts, but in terms of proportions of facts and 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 where I have chosen to look. Because I know when I have made a literary judgment about where the attention of the book is going to go. I know that I'm not a scholar in the sense that, that I, I want to find out everything that can be known and then decide from that what the, what the narrative response should be. Um, in some ways, my narrative response shapes where I went looking. Um, so there's a historical anxiety there. And then on the other side, there's a literary anxiety which says, um, what if my people are half alive? What if I've, I've, I'm operating in, in the uncanny valley here? Uh, nice term from the video games development <laughs> where your people are well enough animated to be really worrying they they where where the fact that they're nearly human really starts to to show mm-hmm. um on the whole i haven't had reactions that confirm either worry historians tend to think i've got it more or less right mm-hmm. um, Although with a little bit of kind of license for kind of, you know, pretty right for a literary guy. Yeah. Hey, I'll take that. <clears throat> and conversely, um, I've got, I, I've tended to get the literary judgment that it, you know, it reads, it reads okay, although it's kind of partitioning is very, is very historical. Um, once something has built up some emotional steam, quite often it then, it then kind of runs into an explanatory wall as I change the subject and start talking about the, um, the annual rhythm of the planning process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I would like to be the case, I don't know if it is, is that there is you know, a kind of ad hoc definition of success to be had somewhere on this centre ground between history and literature in which in which you could have a genuinely explanatory urge and carry it out with genuinely artistic means. This is me, this is me sunbathing and mm-hmm. drinking a drink with an umbrella in it and, and daydreaming, yeah. you understand. Mm-hmm. Um, my judgment on myself is rather more severe than that. <laughs> that, would, that would be the happy ending. That would be, that would be literary abundance or historical mm-hmm. abundance for me. Mm-hmm. Well, there are things that you include in the book of an anecdotal nature, which I think for people, uh, Westerners especially, who have traveled to the Soviet Union, ring very true. Uh, and also are more or less impossible to get at using sort of standard historical documents. And one that I really appreciated, and I wonder how you actually got the idea to do it, is when 
um, the young mathematician goes and visits his, the parents of his uh, girlfriend or betrothed right outside Moscow, in, mm-hmm. in a village right outside Moscow. And for anybody who's visited the Soviet Union in the 1970s or 80s, uh, you know, the difference between inside Moscow and right outside it is incredible. Yeah. You really, it's like you were going into the third world. And you Point. do a really nice job of, of, of showing this and his surprise. How did you come up with that particular anecdote? Um, because I didn't have to invent it. That is a true story about oh, really? Abel Agenbekian. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Wow. Though, um, which, which appears in one of his later Perestroika era memoirs. But it's a very bare anecdote. And this is part of the way in which I... I borrowed elements of his life and then made it happen to a to a, a fictional a fictional person. He went he went to visit his um his his future in laws in a village as um I think very much the kind of urban privileged mm-hmm. privileged young member of the intelligentsia who I who I present. And he walked he walked for miles and miles and miles and was appalled by what he found because it it, it, it squared so little with what mm-hmm. he understood to be the nature of his of his own of his own society. Yeah. Um, it seemed to me to be a, a beautiful measure of the of the gulf between Soviet 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 reality and and Soviet self description. And I wanted it to be I wanted it to be in there as a measure of of how far they'd have to go to get to their own standards of success. And I wanted them. <laughs> I wanted them to know it, though. Yeah. I, wanted, I didn't want them to seem simply blind from the beginning about, about the scale of the task. I wanted them to at least be able to frame the ambition required for that, for that, for that task. But, I mean, starting there, I mean, you, 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 you start with, with one anecdotal piece of truth, and then you simply you expand in all directions by, by looking at the geography of, of the Moscow region and... Mm-hmm. By comparing pictures of nice nice flats in late Stalin Moscow with the kind of tumble down wooden stuff yeah. that peasants were living in forty five kilometers away and and you think about yeah you think about food and drink and clothes mm. and um, and and that stuff and then I mean lots and lots of Soviet literature flows in here it's a it's a it, in some ways, I mean, it's a it's an intensely managerial society with with unthinkingly kind of snobbish reactions <laughs> to, to, to those who are yeah. to, to those who are who are who are less like it. It is part of its its desire to be modern is is this kind of completely unembarrassing kind of willingness to judge people as backward if they. If they aren't, and there was, there is a strand in Soviet literature which is just disgusted by Russians, mm-hmm. which is constantly going kind of. Here is Ivan. Ivan is illiterate and dirty. He has a beard, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and <laughs> eats revolting things. Whereas, if Ivan lived in Moscow and had a higher degree, right. he could be eating at this gastronom number one, ladies uh-huh. and gentlemen. And um, <laughs> in the evenings, he could read Tolstoy or perhaps go to the ballet. We should all be like that. that should yeah. Be. No. Um, Yep. No, that's uh, that is yes. That's definitely it's definitely there. You know, you mentioned this word, this expression, Soviet reality. I don't know if you encountered it w- when you were there, but uh, the, it's a it's a kind of a cliche. It's an ironic cliche, Sovietskaya disfeasalist, and yep. Russians use it or used it when they would when when they were confronted with this uh, yawning gap between the way things were supposed to be 
and yeah. the way things are. So they, you know, you would see something like I remember. I have all these anecdotes. I remember seeing like just the the it was the it was the uh, it was the corpse of a dog, just like practically in the middle of the street in front of my building, and just stayed there all. And I'm just like, I told my friend, you know, I said, like, "Look, look, buddy, just look at that." And he said, "Well, that's Soviet guy just feeding us right there." And I'm, yeah, so it, they had an expression for it. They knew exactly what it was, and yeah, and it, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Let, let me ask about another. Um, Sorry, let me, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt for a moment. In some ways, I mean, that level of slightly chaotic Soviet reality just stays constant all the way through. And what changes? Is, is that people's willingness to, to overlook it or to reinterpret it optimistically yeah. is, what, is what gradually goes away. Sheila Fitzpatrick has got some very nice writing here about um, the ability of educated Soviet opinion to systematically ignore stuff like yeah. that um, early on in the Khrushchev time, which, which gradually gradually wore away to that the precedence that the that the, the radiant future originally had over kind of boring dead dog reality yeah. kind of gradually like like a sort of circus tent with the air being let out of it yeah i remember seeing these posters in which uh, um there were it was a it was a graph and it showed the price of furniture i remember mm. it was furniture Mjibble. And it was it, it started as you know costing this amount, and then it went down and down and down and down until it said free. Wow. Furniture was free, and this was yeah. in 1972. I was there in 1984, and I'm like, wait a minute, it's not free yet. And they're like, say it's got decedentless, you know, it's just not free yet. Yeah. And but you know, again, you you point but out it's, something. It's asymptotically approaching the condition. Yeah. Of, of being free. That's, yeah. I mean, once the graph finally crosses the axis, yeah. then paradise is accomplished. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. But you know, I uh, my, my very simplistic theory of the uh, failure of the Soviet Union ha has a lot to do with the fact that they didn't do what they said they were going to do. They yeah. said they were going to make people rich, and they yeah. didn't make people rich. That's the deal, and people yeah. knew it. And you know, sure, they wanted to believe, and they kept believing. Uh, there are lots of things that I believe in that are completely quixotic that probably will never happen. Um, but, you know, after a while, you become cynical about it and your trust gets eroded away in the people that are telling you that it's going to be just over the next hill. It's mm. always just over the next hill. The Soviet Union lived in the future. It didn't live in yeah. the present. And uh, this got to wear on people. I think they just didn't uh, buy it anymore after a while. And that anecdote about going off into the countryside right outside Moscow is, is truly very, very um, telling. And another um, scene that I wanted to talk to you about because I found it so remarkably uh, compelling and also explanatory is uh, precisely the wandering in of one of the characters into the Gosplan. Uh, they call it a kartotyka <laughs> in, in Russian. It's a big card, system of card files. Yeah. So it goes, this was, and they had a word for it in orktechnika. Orktechnika. And they have these stories called orktechnika. And uh, so it's organizational technology. And so how did you, uh, I, I didn't know there was such a room, and how did you get that? Um, this is oh, this is where I have to reveal reveal the, the terrible shortcuts I took here. Um, I read a description. I read a description in conceptual terms of of, of the of the commodity file system, um, and then I worked backwards from what the files had to have in them yeah. in order to accomplish what year by year they kind of managed to do. Right. Fitted it together with general descriptions of Soviet organizational technology and. Uh -huh. and this life, and I'm afraid deduced the existence, the necessary existence of a room in Gosplan yeah. that behaved like that. Um, here, I have to hold my hands up and go and go. The room itself 
is fictional, but the the role that it played is not fictional. Um, so, just as just as I supplied my my prototype, intelligent, subtle, cynical goss plan goss plan high up with an East German office chair with casters, so that he could zoom. Right. Across, the yeah, that's good. Um, and it's true that there was an East German. Would have been East German, yeah. That's that's clear. Yeah, yeah, naturally, because they they were still feeding in kind of vaguely Bauhausy office yeah, furniture right. in the whole of the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. Um, um, no, it's 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 conceptually right and it's circumstantially right, but I have no evidence of an actual room in Gosplan like that. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guy sitting in a research library in the West who doesn't speak Russian. I hold my hands up. Yeah, no, but it's an interesting idea, and it's certainly, I believe it's correct. If somebody knows out there whether there were such uh, rooms full of kartatyaki, uh, please contact me, because it's a great image, and it shows how hard what they were trying to do was, because all the information in that uh, card catalog was opaque. Hmm. I mean, it was all in those cards. You can't see in those cards. It's not like you could just search them and say, okay, I want all the steel production in the eastern part of the country in the following oblast for the following years. You know, there's yep. no Google search here. It's all buried. And, yep. and, and the person who is most powerful remembers most of it. Exactly. And, and, and they just you can't remember that much stuff. Confirmation right at the top of the planning system of the, the, the weird way in which, in which in a non-market economy everything is much more personal where there is no genuinely kind of genuinely impersonal um, exchange through the price system, people knowing things yep. becomes absolutely, absolutely critical for, for anything to happen. Part of the enthusiasm about computerization among the scientists I've, I've written about is because they liked the idea of being able to search by pig iron or sure. search by, by, by oblast. They never actually got there because that would have meant erasing all of the the minor strongholds of of, of of bureaucratic knowledge which which possessed their bit and knew in you know knew in the existing system how in fact their knowledge could be could be put to work in in mm-hmm. in, in bureaucratic terms so i mean that, that that chapter of the book has got a kind of zoom downwards through through the layers of the soviet economy down from goss plan through plant management finally down to the not quite black market but illicit deal making at the bottom yep. required to make to, required to make the wheels turn and every layer is is opaque to the to the other layers there nobody knows what the next people down are are really doing and all they have to go on is highly unreliable numbers and and their beady-eyed judgment of, of the human reality of, of, of what they're seeing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have another character in the, the book, uh, and I, I've met a couple of people like this. I'd call them fixers in the West, but they're farsovshiki, I think is what it is in Russian. And, and they're people that had some sort of local knowledge that they mm. could use to make deals. It's quite like a commodity trader in the United States who knows how to make a deal. Like, I know where I can actually get these filters, and I can get them at this price. You don't know that. I'll sell that information to you, and I'll take a cut of the deal. That's yeah. very common in capitalism. It happens all the time. Absolutely. Now, there are all kinds of people trying to work their way around that, um, and the Internet is great for it. So you, you can cut the middlemen out. I mean, these are middlemen, but in the Soviet system, there were middlemen everywhere because there had to be middlemen everywhere yeah. because they don't, that's the only way the information could be could be um, could pass. But some interestingly inverted roles so that whereas whereas um in capitalism the the sales role is is the vital the yep. vital persuading point in the economy here they are professional buyers they are mm-hmm. ones who know 
how to extract the goods from producers who see no particular reason for parting to them to any to any particular to any particular customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I mean, yes, it, it is it is all middlemen in a way, yeah, but it is. never quite reconciled to the existence yeah. of middlemen either. Yeah. They are, there is a, every every now and again there are tightening campaigns in which they try and winkle these people out. Um, uh, and it would have been disastrous if they if they'd ever managed it because the middlemen are are the the people who are yeah knowledge brokers the yep. ones who move between isolated pools of information. That's exactly uh, that's exactly right. And the great thing oh, what great thing I don't know if it's great but one of the characteristics of capitalism is that there's just a systematic tendency to cut these people out as yep. often as possible, get yep. rid of them and lower the price and sell into the market. I mean I I've you know I've I've seen it dozens and dozens of times of middlemen that are just basically cut you know there used to be bookstores and there used to be record shops those middlemen got cut out you know they knew the records they knew the books that those unfortunately those people unfortunately or unfortunately I don't know are gone uh, yeah. but in this system it's impossible to cut these people out because they have all that local knowledge which you need actually to make the system run even at a very minimal uh, yeah. level of, of of efficiency um though also I mean the the whole book could be called could be called perverse incentives in in, <laughs> in some ways. Um, I don't, in fact, think that that, that, that makes sense as a, as a complete description of how of how of how Soviet reality works. But but undeniably, at every level, there are there are perverse incentives going on there because what you get is a is a setup where where the various middlemen people try to turn themselves into middlemen um, and to be as uncooperative as possible in order to, to maximize the value of their, of their particular bit of knowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. including, you know, which of the public payphones is genuinely out of service? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, do a favor to the lady behind the counter and she will, she will point to you at the one which will actually work if you put your, if you put your five copeck piece in. Um, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is the kitchen really closed or, or does yeah. the wait- what does the waiter want something from yeah, you? Right. There is an, an Im- immense transaction costs applied to everything. I- immense friction. Friction is exactly the word. Yeah, this is yeah. this is friction, and it occurs in capitalism as well, especially in markets that yeah. can be monopolized. I'm reminded of, um, as part of the New Books Network, I buy a lot of domain names, and there are companies that just have bought them up willy nilly, and these they're just friction. I mean, they're just holding yep. them off the market so that they can gouge me. Uh, well, gouge, I don't know. I mean, they bought them, whatever. You know, yeah. uh, it's actually required me to do some clever things to, to eliminate that middleman. Um, in the Soviet system, it was much more, it was just much more difficult. There's another scene in the book which I thought was a, a terrific evocation of the reality of uh, the way the Soviet system worked. And that is where um, it is explained to someone, I can't remember who, how money just doesn't really make any difference. M- money is not. Uh, the universal store of value and it's not a currency it just is it isn't that important in the system no talk a little um, bit about that yeah money money is the is 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 necessary but never sufficient to make anything happen money money is is tokens it's vouchers it's it's the thing which when you have done the deal for some other reason will then inevitably change hands so there can be a kind of bookkeeping reconciliation about it but money is never the motive for action it's never it's never the true store of value and because of the fundamental the fundamental nature of the society and and constantly reinforced decision making about this had money been able to be to be active all sorts of things would no longer have been within the powers of of conscious choice um of you know of, of of politicians at the top of the system, of bureaucrats midway down, but also of lots and lots of of, 
of private individuals. In some ways, this is a this is a you know it's a it's a society that shares the idea that that people should do things for for human reasons. Treat me as a human being. A very a very right. Soviet statement, which actually means everything should be pragmatic. Everything should be negotiated between the two of us. So mm-hmm. we say bureaucracy, but oddly, Soviet bureaucracy is very unlike um, the traditional kind of. Weberian definition of what bureaucracy it is. It isn't this impersonal rule-governed structure. It's a, it's a mass of people in offices, all of whom, all of whom have to be negotiated with separately. It's it's weirdly unstreamlined. It's more like mm. a kind of oral reef or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know what the question is. I'm just heading no, off. No, that's okay. I w- I'm reminded a little bit of something I you occasionally see in movies, and and that is when the um, the the mafia boss says to the person he's about to kill. Uh, it's not personal; it's just business. Yeah, but you know that's BS because everything everything is personal in the mafia. There every, can't be anything uh, that isn't personal in the mafia. That's why, in fact, the same guy, um, Chekuskin, my 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 fictional fixer, says everything is personal a lot because it, it seems to me to be the central the central Soviet truth. Um, um and I wanted, and I. He he comes up next to a next to a chapter called Prisoner's Dilemma. Um because one of the things I wanted to be a little ironic about is our over readiness in the West to think that you know that, that, that the prisoner's dilemma in game theory is this, you know, this sad thing about about how cooperation is ruled out by the by the structure of the game. And and we if we only we could manage to trust each other in our separate cells, kind of Greater goodwill and benevolence would would occur, but in fact, the the classic, <laughs> the classic way of outwitting the prisoner's dilemma is to be in the mafia. If you have got a genuine, convinced kind of um, gun enforced ability to to um, to provide people with stronger reasons to to be loyal to each other, then you can outwit the prisoner's dilemma um, because you could never get a grand jury to convict you. And it seemed to me that that everything is personal has 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 very similar effects here. There is an, an extremely un touchy feely area of of human cooperation that becomes necessary when everything is personal. I mean, mm-hmm. and I I wanted to talk in yeah I'm. Slightly satirical terms, really, about what happens in a society in which, in which you never get to turn your pace, your personal radar off, in which, in which, in which, all your human relationships are partly infused with the kind of with the material conduct of your of your whole society. So you are constantly having to to mix personal life with 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 economic life, and I wanted. I wanted the kind of the horribleness yeah. of that to to come out, and the way that it made everyone a kind of low level mafioso in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little bit like a family, you know. You can never really, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm cynical about families, but in the family, decisions are not made usually on economic bases. I mean, they, you know, I mean, you got to get yeah. somebody's assent or will, or there's anger and fear and these other things, and. Imagine that writ large. It, you know, it is in a certain way kind of terrifying. And in the Russian context, there are, are words and concepts which are indicative of this. Every Russian of any import had what was called a krishka, a roof, mm. and that was yep. their protector. That was somebody, it was their patron, basically. Somebody, you know, sort of 18th century English sort of thing, like, you know, he yep. has a letter of recommendation from that guy. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's untouchable. Um, he's yep. a made man. You know, there he is. Uh, and, the only, yeah, and the only disruption that can come is from way up. 
and it can't come from within the system because everybody has this very subtle mm, kind of accounting of favor trading. Uh, and, and, you know, blocked is something else that you, you, you mentioned, and that, that just means influence, but it's, it's influence beyond anything we can really understand. It's, it's a yeah. kind of fungible influence. It's, it can really get you stuff. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not, yeah, I can convince him to go, you know, to the country for the weekend. It's not like that. It's, I, I can actually get gas there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not marginal. It is, it is actually overlong. <clears throat> what we think of as, as the cash economy to, yeah, that's right. to a huge extent. Um, yeah, and what you were saying, I was just remembering um, Nadezhda Mandelstam, the poet's wife, um, writes somewhere about finding herself, I think, I think in a bath, in a, you know, in a bathhouse or something with Madame Yagoda, the, the, yeah. the security chief's wife, sometime in the 30s, because one of the oddities of, of the, you know, Soviet cultural politics is that cultural people, as well as being oppressed, also have extraordinary high-level access. And and Madame Yagoda says to her, kind of comfortably and familiarly, "Tell me, who do you go to?" <laughs> Meaning exactly that. Which Politburo member has? You know, everyone's got a string of poets. Yeah. Who, who, who? You know, who do you belong to? Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. No, it's that's it's quite it's quite it's quite true. So uh, let me ask you this. How, mm. How'd it fall apart? Um, Let's just conclude by, by you know, sort of like, it, it, didn't, it didn't work, right? I've, I've, actually, uh, I should tell you by the way of an anecdote. I've been to a... Multiple reasons. It, in, in some ways, I'm, I'm trying not to abuse my license to be literary here, but it, it was, its collapse is so overdetermined that, that in some ways picking the, the relative effect of different factors is, is very difficult. But here are some. Um, Whereas the first stage of an industrial revolution can be done without demand signals, it's very difficult to to move on to 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 the subtler stuff. Um, the coordination problems get much worse as you kind of as you move up the value tree. And whereas the Soviet Union could do 1930s capitalism simulated rather well. Um, they couldn't move from heavy industry to light industry. They couldn't really substitute um, kind of end user definitions of what was what was valuable. Um, that's one thing. That's, that's an underlying thing. Um, the reform proposals would probably have been destructive rather than helpful. And in some ways, small C Soviet conservatives like and I, I, I show Kosygin kind of putting his putting his putting his thumb down firmly to, to prevent the 1965 reform from getting too cybernetic. Um, um, they were probably quite acute in, in saying that, that actually it would simply have made the economy work less coherently than it, than it already did. Um, uh, the decay of various kinds of, of idealism has something to do with it, and, and with it the willingness to do political risk-taking. In some ways, Khrushchev extremely rash as a leader that he was is the last Soviet leader till Gorbachev who was willing to take to take to take risks in order to get to get results so there's a small c conservatism sinking down into kind of you know we're glad of what we've got we'll stay with that um oil which provides um starting in starting in the 60s oil revenue seems to provide a kind of gloriously straightforward alternative to all all of this complicated coordinated development stuff because you can just sell oil to the capitalists and spend the money on importing salamis and fiat <laughs> and other stuff so that in the 1970s 
the superpower USSR is partly just it's buying its aircraft carriers with oil and it's buying it's buying its salamis and fiats for its people with oil as well and that's that's a lot more straightforward commodity production which is what contemporary russia seems to have ended up with is much much simpler to do um and then there is a political thing here about about the defeat of of a generation's political hopes and political project the people who were in their 20s and 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 early 30s in the 1960s um, who had been expecting to to rise into positions of influence had to wait for twenty years um, and gorbachev 's generation in in the 1980s are are those people um, his economic advisors are the disappointed graduate students of the early 1960s who finally finally get to carry out their generational project of yeah. uh, of socialism with a human face um, um, through you know cybernetic economics and things and a lot of what you know the the kind of that incredibly rapid shuffle of not uh, of non-functional reform proposals from 1985 through to sort of 88 or 89 or so are versions of 1960s ideas um Mm -hmm. and they don't work but they are being pursued with with genuine commitment which is why they don't seem to have gone the chinese route i mean it's the great mystery the the soviet union could be standing now all they had to do was decollectivize land um and bin the planning system and keep the leninist political system that's what the chinese did um there'd be there'd be far more skyscrapers in russia now than just the gazprom tower (laughs) if if they if they'd done that um and the only reason that i think makes sense is the idealism that 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 trapped the system a last lingering desire to to vindicate vindicate bolshevism in its own terms rather than being pragmatic yeah i think you're right I think you're exactly right. Let me ask one more question. What happened to your characters? Hmm. You know, um, what happened to cybernetics and the characters that sort of pushed it and cybernetics Berg and these other people? Okay. Kantorovich becomes a much-loved grand old man of Soviet mathematics with graduate students and graduate students of graduate students who form a kind of tribe in his in his honor, who love and revere him for his his... The, the beauty of his mind and his innocence. And he, he dies in 86, I think, mm-hmm. before he can be disappointed by perestroika. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Abel Agenbekian, who's not one of my characters, but whose life I borrowed yes. slightly, becomes a Gorbachev advisor um, and then um, does, his, does his damnedest to make things work between 1985 and 1990 and then adapts rather well and kind of, you know, in a quick-footedly to the new capitalist reality, and founds an investment bank. <laughs> uh, Khrushchev, Khrushchev um, gets sacked by his colleagues and dies in sorrow and nightmares and guilt, gardening in his dasha, um, but posing for photographs with Soviet holidaymakers who 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 walk past his place. He being one of the few Soviet leaders who it was safe to ask, you know, to pose for a photograph with you. And I, I find him wonderful as a figure because monster though he was, he remain, he remains a, a kind of recognizable human being mm-hmm. uh, with a, with a, a, a kind of dented and blackened, but still functional soul. Um, and he, um, he, you know, he dies talking bitterly and, and in a state of terrible bemusement and bafflement about why socialism 
doesn't seem to be what he was told it was. He, <laughs> he says into the, the tape recorder his son provides, um, Paradise is a place that people are supposed to want to be, not a place that they flee from. Yeah. What kind of socialism is it when you have to keep people in chains? What kind of shit is this, he yeah. says, yeah. being as foul-mouthed as he ever was when he was in the Politburo. Yeah. Um, um, and I, I say goodbye to the rest of them, to the fictional ones, at various points in the, the kind of late 60s, early 70s, when they're making their peace with, with, with Brezhnevite reality. Um, poor, poor Lebedev, the Soviet computer pioneer dies of lung cancer um while fruitlessly trying to persuade um Kosygin that they really ought not to give up indigenous computer design and just imitate ibm mm-hmm. um but the politburo like various other corporate types in the 1970s took the view that nobody was ever fired for buying ibm <laughs> <laughs> in their case reverse engineering I, yeah um that's a that's a sad. <laughs> it is it is, it's a it's a it's a sad. It is a sad end altogether yeah. if you assume that the idealism provides the plot. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you mean. Let me let me um, ask uh, another question before I ask our final question. I know I'm dragging this out a little bit, but we promised we would talk about it, and I think we can spar a little bit. I would say this is a book of historical fiction. Hmm. I don't think you would, and many reviewers didn't. Part of <sighs> I think it's genuinely both. That's the thing. I think the mixture is too real for it to settle down in being in being one thing. Um, it's shaped like an explanation. Um, and though I've got a whole That's thing true. I can say about how how you know why should fiction always be concerned with private lives? We neglect work in the novel. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This is this is all this is all true. In some ways, I'm not following a completely imaginative thread through. The structure is given by explanation, which is a historical thing to do. Yeah. Um, if it were a historical novel, then then at some point I would be running with the shape of those lives rather than stopping and going, <clears throat> but over here in another part of the forest. Right. War and Peace style. Yeah. Yeah. War and oh, Peace style. That is a novel, come to think of it. Yeah, War and Peace is a novel. Yeah, that's Well, he yeah. didn't. He claimed it wasn't a novel. Ah, you he, see? he said this is not a novel. This is something Another else. Theme. Yeah. Another of the very few ways in which I resemble Paul. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there have been a lot of comparisons to Orwell. That's not a bad thing. Oh, God, no. No, I'm, I'm, I am very flattered by, by comparisons like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I grew up with a kind of Orwell-soaked understanding of, of the world. I read 1984 when I was... 11 for yeah, example yeah. so so you know it's it's a it's a it it stains my vision of everything so mm-hmm. and you know with the sales of this book you'll never have to work again isn't that not... <laughs> i don't know how to break this you, Marshall, but, um... <laughs> you mean you didn't make a huge pile of cash no but then you know, skeptical about money what that's really important yeah no it's true money. it's true well, this has been one of my most enjoyable interviews. As I said, I became a fan of the book early on. I'm not the kind of person to generally do that, but I read it and I said, you know what, this guy's on to something and I got to get in touch with him. So it's really a terrific book. It's called Red Plenty. And, you know, sometimes it has a subtitle and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, it had a, it had a, it had a subtitle in England partly because the publisher was nervous and thought people needed 
a little bit of you know a little bit of steering to right. show them what kind of thing it was um and the subtitles vanished in the US edition and I'm 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 quite glad I'd I'd rather people made up their own mind mm. about whether it was a novel or history or mm. something else I included the subtitle though I you know I I I think I mentioned the subtitle I don't know it doesn't really matter very much but anyway Francis thank you so much for talking with us today again the book is called Red Plenty I encourage you to go out and buy it so Francis never has to work again although he'll work again anyway because that's yeah, the way yeah. people like us work yeah. and and uh, I hope you have a good day Thank you Marshall Okay take care You've been listening to an interview with Francis Bufford about his new book, Red Plenty, Industry, Progress, Abundance, Inside the 50s Soviet Dream. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.